WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the official podcast of the WMQ Comics website. I'm your host, Dan Grote. This episode has a lot going on. Uh, first, we chat with writer Steve Horton about his uh, David Bowie OGN. Bowie, Stardust, Ray Guns, and Mood Age Daydreams with Mike and Laura Allred. Uh, one of my favorite books so far this year. Uh, it's from Insight Comics. Check it out. And then go watch some old Venture Brothers episodes where Bowie is the sovereign. Uh, then, Matt, Vionica, Beatrice, and I conclude our actual play RPG, Troubleshooters in the Jewel-Encrusted Bunny of Destiny. Uh, we hope you enjoyed our little 100th episode experiment. Uh, and if you'd like to know more about the world Matt has built, let us know. Maybe we'll do this again for the 150th or something. Uh, and finally, uh, Matt and I get around to answering those 100th episode listener questions we put out the call for last month. Thank you for your patience. <laughs> uh, first, a bit of business. We have some new patrons to welcome into our fold. Uh, thank you, Carla Pacheco, Saren, and Rick Cook Jr. for joining the WMQ Comics family. Uh, as subscribers to the WMQ Patreon, they get early access to episodes, thanks on our site and on the show, and a customized bonus reading column by Matt Lazowitz built around the character, creator, or theme of their choice. Uh, we've already got one request for a Spider-Woman-centric column, so I look forward to hearing what the other two of you request. Uh, these new backers put us within spitting distance of our first goal of $10 in monthly subscribers, which will trigger a new Starman project Matt's been working on. So uh, Starman fans, raise those wands and make yourselves known. Uh, meanwhile, uh, what do we got going on over at WNQComics.com? Uh, we've got Will Nevin talking Sean Gordon Murphy, Raphael, and Cosmic Crisp Apples in his Why Will column. We've got Joshua Bermont reviewing Quantum and Woody number one. We got Matt Lazowitz writing about James Tiny and the Fourth's run on Detective Comics. Uh, in this month in Gotham, and we've got little old me uh, picking our top comics for April. Hi, the hence to WMQComics.com to peep all those goodies. Uh, all right, enough pre-show banter. Let's get on with it. Here are me and Matt and Steve and Veronica. Uh, so, Steve, uh, what comics do you remember reading when you first got into the medium? Uh, oh, goodness. That, back when I was 12 years old, uh, I would... Uh, accompanying my mother to grocery stores and uh, she would pick up the latest issues of Transformers and Power Pack both from Marvel uh, and she was fine with that when they were 50 cents or 75 cents <laughs> but whenever they would do a dollar or dollar 25 giant size issue she would argue about it and I'd have to convince her to still buy, buy me the comics so I wouldn't miss out on the anniversary issue that, that was definitely my earliest exposure to comics was Marvel, and uh, for a while, that's all I would buy was Marvel comics. It wasn't until, uh, I think, late high school or college that I started branching out into uh, DC and then independent comics. So I, I, I take it, based on that sort of that cover price threshold, once the 90s hit, it was all, uh, <laughs> you're on your own. Yeah, I had to take my summer job money to buy the comics and I, I, would, I didn't care about the foil covers so I would always <laughs> if there was a uh, newsstand edition that was cheaper I would always go for that one uh, occasionally there was only the foil edition back in those days when everyone was doing them and of course all of the retailers would buy them all up from everywhere and they wouldn't be on sale at all so I would have to skip an issue and that was annoying <laughs> <laughs> speculators yeah <laughs> I remember, for everyone. To, <laughs> I, I, I remember going to a convention uh, in the 90s in late high school uh, in Portland, Oregon, 
and there was an issue of the Tom DeFalco, Paul Ryan, Fantastic Four uh, with Johnny Storm on the cover, and the whole thing was in, embossed. And uh, it was, that was the current issue, and I just wanted it to read. Mm-hmm. But I went out. To, I went around to, to every dealer on the show floor, and then no one had it because they were all speculating, and so it was impossible to find. So I had no idea what happened on that one. <laughs> So uh, you're here because you co-wrote with Mike Allred uh, a uh, biographic novel tracking David Bowie's early career. Uh, you know, focusing largely on the period between Space Odyssey and the or Space Oddity, excuse me, and the uh, last performance of Ziggy Stardust. Uh, you know, Mike writes about it in uh, about you know in, in the uh, in the book about it being a passion project for him. But uh, I'm curious how how you got to become involved in it. Uh, I'm a big David Bowie fan, not as much as Mike, uh, but about three years ago, uh, it was a year after Bowie's death, and uh, Orbital Comics in uh, London was doing an exhibition where they, they commissioned a whole bunch of comic book artists to interpret uh, Bowie album covers in their own way and draw them themselves, uh, how they would like the albums to look. And so they had this great exhibition there. It was wonderful, and that kind of inspired me. Uh, what if someone did a whole graphic novel about David Bowie? No one's really ever done this before. There have been some smaller works, but no one's really attempted a biography in that form. Uh, the original artist kind of dropped out after a short period of time, and then uh, I kind of found Mike Allred. Uh, I, for, a friend of mine named uh, Phil Hester told me, you have to talk to Mike uh, when I was looking for an artist. So I, I tracked his email down, and he was extremely enthusiastic uh, I'm a big Bowie fan. He's an even bigger Bowie fan, and we just we were up to the races after that. That's great. Um, I got I got to say, spending too much time on the internet as I do, uh, the response to this book seems like it's been overwhelmingly positive. You know, like like first hit of the year type stuff. Uh, you know, what what have you been seeing on your end? Yeah, the critical reception has been uh, overwhelmingly positive. Extremely, everyone is extremely happy. Not just Bowie fans. Uh, they're course over the moon but also casual music fans or just comic fans in general uh it's almost universal praise uh which is wonderful to be validated and to realize that our three-year effort has uh turned out to be a pretty good comic uh the the sales have also been really strong so it's nice to be a part of something that's not just uh critically acclaimed but uh is also selling really really well so that's nice too No, that is that is definitely great. Uh, what was the dynamic like between you and Mike in terms of, of you know working together? I put together an initial script, which got us the agent, the publisher, and then uh, Mike said, you know, I, I'd love to draw this, but I think I'm going to do a rewrite because there's a lot of stuff you left out. There's a lot more detail we could put in, a lot more of the cool events that happened in Bowie's life, a lot of things that I really want to draw that happened to Bowie that I've never gotten to draw before. And so he, he rewrote it. And a, pretty much uh, 75% of my script still made it in, which is wonderful. And he just added a lot of stuff, uh, behind-the-scenes material, a lot of captions and uh, cameos and really cool meetings and a lot of stuff that really deserved to be in there make, to make the book whole. Uh, and the cool thing is, there's uh, anytime you see a dialogue or detail, it's pretty much verbatim of what really happens we try to be as super accurate as we could but also uh, since we couldn't print the lyrics we also decided to put a lot of 
crazy psychedelic sequences in to illustrate some of the songs. That that yeah, that's that's an awesome way around it. <laughs> it's always uh-huh. fascinating to me to see music represented in comics because mm-hmm. it is one of the few things that comics can't do that other <laughs> mediums can. Is that that right. whole that came from Mike, that sort of psychedelia to represent the music? Uh, once I knew Mike was on board, uh, I put some stuff into the script to make sure that he would draw a kind of Steve Ditko, Doctor Strange sequence between David Bowie and Ziggy Stardust. Uh, that was a- that was after we landed Mike already because I really wanted to draw that. <laughs> and um, But yeah, a lot of the psychedelic sequences were in the script and a lot of them came from him as well. Uh, kind of a mix, but we wanted to make sure that people following along and putting together their own uh, track lists and their own playlists um, would see some of their favorite songs depicted. Uh, one of my all-time favorite scenes in the book is uh, the Life on Mars sequence when um, he hears about this terrible song uh, called My Way from Frank Sinatra and he realizes that <laughs> what the song is based on and he decides to write his own version of that that kind of uh, makes fun of it and came out with Life on Mars and you kind of see all the verses illustrated over the next few pages including Mickey Mouse becoming a cow and all the other cool lyrics in the song and then he rushes downstairs uh, and finds Rick Wakeman and said, "Hey, I'm gonna play this, but I'm terrible at the piano. Can you make this? Can you can you do the the piano part of this?" And it went from there. And I'm curious. You said that the the a lot of that narration was Mike because I thought it was interesting that sort of very staccato narration versus making it hugely flowery and being letting the dialogue carry so much of the book. My original script had no no uh, captions whatsoever, but I realized that a lot of fans would be lost about you know what people's names were, what was happening when. So I think the captions do add a lot to the story and about to kind of just show setting and place and time and, and kind of orient the reader um, because it does jump around in time quite a bit. So it would be pretty confusing otherwise unless you were like an uber fan like we were to know where Bowie was at any given time without the captions. I'm curious, what was your first exposure to uh, Mike Alred's work? I mean, for me, it was the the Pres Rickard issue of Sandman, but uh, he's he's kind of a legend at this point. So, for me, it was X Force. Uh, the uh, his run on X Force with Peter Milligan was my first exposure to him, and it's legendary, way ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. Uh, people didn't know what to make of it. It was so, so groundbreaking, uh, and I loved it. I I felt like all comics should be like this. And I uh, loved the art, and I, then I tracked down a lot of his other material. Uh, I've tracked down his Madman uh, and uh, all of his other com- comics that take, that take place in the Batman universe. And, uh, and then recently I read a Silver Surfer. Um, when I first found Mike, he was just coming off that run. And my opinion is probably the best Silver Surfer that's ever been done. I think it's even better than John Buscema or Jack Kirby or even Mobius. I, I really, really like his run. Yeah, it's definitely that's definitely something I, I've heard from, from people who've read that book. And just honestly, on the whole, I feel like Allred is one of those artists who really has aged like a fine wine. I mean, going from from you know watching him evolve from Madman to uh, uh, you know X Force Ecstatics to the more recent stuff like like Bowie and, and Surfer and um, you know he's uh, coming out from Dark Horse uh, this spring, X Ray Robot, I think it's called. But uh, yeah, no, it's it's you know it's great. 
Yeah, yeah he's doing X-ray robot. He's jumping into more X Force stuff with Milligan. Uh, I think it's I can't remember what that's called now, but and he's going to be doing some more thing, cool stuff as well. Uh, coming up this year and next year, and I'm going to be first in line to buy all of it. Yeah, um, yeah, that's my, my, right, that's right. The X Stats are coming back. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> and, and I think my one of my favorite things of his is this weird little one shot he did with uh, through Vertigo with Steve Siegel that was called Vertical. It was mm-hmm. about half the width of a normal comic, and it opened vertically instead of horizontally, so it was this gigantic thin strip comic it was just bizarre and so cool that one i saw recently i saw a uh article about it and i'd never heard of it before and, I, and it blew my mind and i said to myself someday i need to track this down i still have to track it down but uh it's one of the few things of his that i haven't read yet but i really want to i love when people play play with form like that that is uh-huh. that is awesome <laughs> I've got to dig out my copy again and read it. It's been a while. Um, but, you know, getting, getting back to Bowie, uh, you know, how, how long did it take kind of start to finish, uh, you know, from, from you guys getting together to, you know, let, uh, beginning of this year when the book, you know, actually came out? Uh, it took me about six weeks to write the script. Uh, it took about three years to draw it. So, uh Mike worked on it in between and around other projects that he was working on at the time uh, and pretty much worked very steadily on this book uh, with Laura Allred providing amazing colors, uh, especially on the covers and the, during the fantasy sequences. His, his Her colors really make the book. Uh, and they were working on um, Laura was tr- uh, coloring Catwoman, the ongoing monthly series at the time, mm-hmm. and she was, she was also working on this. Uh, so it was definitely a labor of love that they uh, built into their schedules and uh, I'm I feel very uh, privileged but uh, I feel very fortunate that they were able to work on this book with me and with Inside Comics and uh, really kind of show our love for Bowie to everyone and uh, I think it kind of paid off yeah absolutely and and Laura you know definitely brings out the best in in Mike's work um, you know Obviously, a lot of research went into this. Uh, you know, there's there's a hefty source list at the back of the book. You know, what what was the research price process like for you guys? Uh, both of us had a huge stack of uh, Bowie books that we read, other autobiographies, other biographies, other reference works, lots of videos online, uh, lots of uh, bootleg and official concert recordings. Uh, we pretty much absorbed anything and everything we could find, uh, so that we were sure that this book didn't come with from any one source but from many sources especially when they disagreed or argued over what really happened uh, we try to kind of synthesize all, all the sources into uh what we feel was the most likely uh occurrence and i think we did a pretty good job i think anyone could read this and say yeah most likely that's what happened in any given situation uh there have been a lot of he said she said about arguments and different things that have happened and uh but this this is pretty much pretty accurate as, as at least as much as you could could get without actually being there um what was there something or or were there any things that you learned in doing this research and writing the book that surprised you oh goodness yes uh i was somewhat of a casual Bowie fan before I started. I was a fan, but I, I only listened to, you know, the albums that everyone knows. Uh, and during the research process and reading a lot and listening to 
pretty much his entire breadth of work, I definitely gained a lot more knowledge about him and his life uh, and the spiders and his various managers and all of the other uh, Lou Reed and Iggy Pop and all of the other people that he interacted with uh, that I didn't know a whole lot about before. But uh, after doing this book, I feel like I know a lot more about now. Yeah. I mean, I, I like one of my favorite small details is he happened to be like shopping in an outdoor bazaar the same time as like a young Freddie Mercury. Yeah, he actually bought a clothes from from Freddie Mercury for um, photo shoots, uh, and because he liked the fashion, and he actually uh, they actually did interact early on. So when they got back together years later, uh, after the events in the book. Uh, to do under pressure they are they already knew about each other and uh had, had yet to work together in an official capacity until right then but um they, they were uh i would say they're they weren't necessarily friends but they're definitely colleagues yeah i mean you definitely you definitely get the feeling that the the community even being you know transatlantic as it was was very small you know what I mean? Like Mick Jagger was around. Freddie Mercury was around. Rachel, or, um, you know, um, oh my God, I'm blanking on T-Rex now. Um, you know, they Mark were Bowen, there. Uh, yeah, the Mark Who, Bowen. Ev- uh, <laughs> the, just, just everyone was around and there, there was so much talent going on uh, all around them. Uh, so many great artists and great bands to come out of that scene uh, in Britain and uh, crossing over into the U.S. Uh, there was definitely something in the water there to produce so many great musicians. Uh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, you know, you're working with Mike, which, you know, obviously is huge. We just, you know, all, you know, saying his praises. Uh, how, you know, how does one react when, 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 you, when you find out that, you know, Neil Gaiman's going to write the forward to this book? Well, Mike and Neil worked together on Sandman, mm-hmm. and also they also worked together. I just found this out because I did, didn't really read it at the time, which I should have. Uh, they they did a Metamorpho strip uh, for Wednesday Wednesday Comics. Oh, uh, so I, good! So I recently read, and I like that he interacts with the periodic table in it. I thought, I thought that was hysterical, and uh, and I read that, and I said. That's great, and he he knows Neil really well. They're really good friends, and uh, he said, you know, if we got the if we got Neil to do the intro, it'd be amazing. And so he reached out to him, uh, to Neil, and said, I'll, I'll try, and and it worked out. And his intro is very flattering, and uh, he really really liked the book, and he's tweeted about it a few times, and uh, we always see a really nice sales spike whenever he tweets about our book, which we really appreciate. You know, you've 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 mentioned being a, a casual Bowie fan. Um, you know, have you always been you know big big into music? Is it Bowie specifically? You know, where do your kind of musical tastes run? Uh, I'm very broad. I like a lot of metal, a lot of alternative. Uh, if I were to do another biography, graphic novel, there'd be a lot to choose from that I really enjoy. Uh, I listen to. A lot of different stations on Sirius XM, uh, a lot, a lot of different playlists on, on Spotify. Uh, anything except country, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, do you remember what your first Bowie album was? Uh, Hunky Dory, the uh, one that everyone listens to first. Uh, <laughs> which is pretty basic, but I like Life on Mars. It's my favorite song. Uh, so that's definitely the album I go to most, but. Uh, I like Ziggy. I like Aladdin Sane, uh, Diamond Dogs. I recently re-listened to Station to Station, and it's it's six songs, and it's just flawless, and it's amazing. 
uh, how tight that album is. It's one of my favorites now. Uh, and some of his later work, like uh, I really like Earthling. Uh, I like uh, The Next Day and Black Star and uh, a lot of those other later albums. Outside is really good. There's a lot of good material on his in his 90s and 2000s output that people might not realize uh, because they only listen to his 70s stuff. Yeah, actually, I think my my first album was, uh, and of course, gosh darn it, I'm blanking on it, but it's the one that came out in 1999 that had Tuesday's Child and the Pretty Things Are Going to Hell on it. Oh, that was Hours. Hours, yes, thank you. Yeah, I worked in a Sam Goody at the time, and like that was one of the promo discs that we had that they would just play in the store. I mean, I, I'd heard Bowie before that, but that, you know, was around the time I actually had, like, you know, walking around money to buy uh, CDs. If I'm not mistaken, that album was made uh, kind of in tribute to Iman as kind of a wedding album. Uh, and so a lot of the songs on there are kind of re- in reference to their relationship, which I think is pretty amazing. Uh, do, you, um, do you remember how, you know, where you were or, or maybe how you, you know, reacted when he, when he died in 16? I was devastated. Uh, that was him, and then Prince, and then George Michael uh, back to back, yeah. and mm-hmm. it was it was a rough year for fans of that music air musical era, the '70s and '80s, and uh, it was devastating. I was, uh, a lot of comic fans were posting art tributes to him on, on Twitter around that time. It was very sad to see, and uh, it was rough because no one knew he was sick. Uh, and he came out with Black Star, as and then people were starting to clue clue into what the album meant. And then he died a few days later, uh, and so that was really sad. Uh, no one saw it coming, and uh, even the reviews, the contemporary reviews of the album, refer to him still being alive because they were written, you know, before or during the, the release date. Yeah. And so it was really sad because. Uh, by the time the reviews were published in magazines, he was already dead. So it was it was rough. That um, and even revisiting the anniversary uh, over the next few years, and here it is four years later, and people are still really broken up uh, in, in the month of January because uh, his the day he was born and the day he died are only a couple of days apart. So it's kind of it kind of turned January into a, a Bowie month. Yeah. No. Definitely. Um... You know, I, I would say, you know, for me, it's, it's definitely one of the celebrity, the few celebrity deaths that's actually, you know, I, I think honestly affected me in my life. It's like Bowie, Chris Cornell, Phil Hartman and Neil Peart just a few weeks ago. Oh, that was rough. Yeah. My uh, my editor, uh, Mark, is a huge Rush fan, has uh, helped uh, helped with a Rush book that their publisher made. I worked with the band. Uh, I was a ma- massive Rush fan, so he was de- completely devastated uh, by Neil Peart's death, and that that was a really rough one. Chris Cornell, uh, I grew up in the in the nineties in the, in the in the Pacific Northwest, surrounded by that music. Uh, Legally, you were required to listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was everywhere, and I lo- I loved it all, and especially Soundgarden, and so that one hit me pretty hard, uh, especially since he was very, still very young and he was was experiencing a lot of depression. So that was it was really really hard hard to to take that one because I feel like he still had a lot of really good music left in him. Yeah. Um, now, now how are you, how are you generally listening? Are you, are you a vinyl guy? Are you a, you know, a record collector or are you pretty much all digital at this point? Yeah. I'm a kind of a 
new uh, in between Gen X and Millennials, so I kind of uh, listen to everything digitally. I kind of abandoned physical media a long time ago. Smart. You know, I, I'm, I'm looking around at all these DVDs on like various racks in my house, and I'm like, why? You know, it's like, I, I have Disney Plus. Why do I have any of this anymore? It's just occupying space. <laughs> For me, it's my kids get a hold of the discs and break them or scratch them or scatter them all over the house. So I try to, mm-hmm. uh, I try to, I try to get rid of them as much as I can. Yeah. Childless life, baby. I love me my physical media. <laughs> <laughs> Cause the cat doesn't care about DVDs. Uh, your cat's not likely to knock a disc onto the floor or anything like that. Yeah. No. <laughs> She's not. If you leave it, you know, bat, shiny side up, she might stare into it and look at herself. <laughs> And admire how pretty she is, but that's about it. Isn't that right, Pets? <laughs> oh, man. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I think I told this story uh, last year. We had Jeff Rugby on the show right around the time Gunning for Hits had launched, but uh, for a little bit, I was seeing this therapist who was a session musician in Philadelphia in the late seventies. And he played because he was working at Sigma. He played sax on young Americans. So yeah. So for our last session, I just made him tell me Bowie stories. (laughs) Yeah. Great great album. Uh, A lot of, a lot of good songs on that one. I like that. It was very much influenced by that, that sound. And uh, that's amazing that he got to play on that. It must have been quite an experience. Oh yeah, no, definitely. You know, the funny thing is, I thought he was going to tell me something like crazy with Bowie, especially you know that's the whole Thin White Duke period. You know, mm-hmm. he's he's into the, he's getting heavy into the cocaine, but he tangents off into Teddy Pendergast. That guy was off the rails. Ah, <laughs> uh, and that's interesting. And uh, I think that Luther Vandross, I think, was a backup singer uh, for Bowie around that period as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Stuff. Um, we uh, we would love to. Uh, I I hope to someday revisit Bowie for 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 another book. Uh, we'll just have to see how sales do and and things like that. But hopefully someday we'll get to tell the rest of the story. You have read our mind on what the <laughs> next question would be. <laughs> There's a lot more ground to cover. Then White Duke period, uh, his later work after that, and Let's Dance and the albums that followed. Uh, there's definitely a lot more ground to cover and a lot of very interesting things that happened to him in his life uh, that even fewer, fewer people know about. A lot of people's knowledge of Bowie stops and ends with Siggy, so it would be a lot of fun to explore the rest. Definitely, especially as, like, you know, he's going through the 80s and, and you know, from less dance into, even like, the Tin Machine stuff, like how he's evolving and trying to sort of stay relevant, keep up, keep up with the times, but also keep ahead of the times. You know, the I'm Afraid of Americans do have with Trent Reznor. You know, it's just, it's amazing how he keeps changing. I love that we got to include a little bit of that in the back of the book as an epilogue. Uh, Allred asked asked me, I'm doing this montage sequence. Is there anything you'd really like me to include? And I made sure to request uh, the I'm Afraid of Americans video where he, Bowie's being chased around by Trent Reznor. And he, he put a little panel of that in there, which I appreciated. Yeah. And just and seeing Allred draw Bowie in the in the labyrinth getup, too, was just amazing. Yes, he uh, he did a full-page labyrinth commission a while back 
that's around the internet if you look. Um, but he definitely draws the the Goblin King very well. And uh, if if we were ever to do more, I would make sure that we covered Labyrinth extensively. Uh, but uh, it's it's funny. Matt and I were talking like right before we went to recording, and and you know ideas for what a follow would be if that were something you would be to do. And we were just talking about how interesting it is to see all the people around his orbit as well. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, yeah. like Iggy or or, or Lou Reed, etc. Yeah, and that doesn't change as he gets older. Uh, he, he interacts with the Pixies. Uh, he interacts with quite a few, uh, quite a few bands. Flaming Lips that uh, he worked with. Uh, there are a lot of bands that he worked worked alongside toward the end of his life that that would make appearances in the book and uh, and a lot of great music videos to reference, uh, like. Uh, Ashes to Ashes music video would be a really good one to talk about because that video was legendary and won tons of awards uh, and is really, really uh, bizarre and psychedelic and shows a lot of his mime and clown period in it, and, which I really, really liked. I liked all the references to his very early career in that video. Uh, so there's, like, like I said, there's a lot of ground to cover still. Definitely. Uh, now, here's where we might reach a little, but... Uh, are you by any chance uh, familiar with or a fan of the Adult Swim program, The Venture Brothers? Uh, a little bit. Uh, not not really watched too many episodes, but I'm somewhat familiar with the characters. I see all I see uh, costumes every time I go to a convention. Okay, so I, I definitely won't belabor this, but there was like a period, especially early on in the show, where like one of the sort of big bad characters was a shapeshifter who took the form of David Bowie. Uh, <laughs> And walked around with, he had these two henchmen. One was Iggy Pop and the other was Klaus Nomi. Uh, it's funny. There, Bowie did an SNL appearance with Klaus Nomi once. I wonder yeah. if they're referencing that at all. That's hilarious. They probably were. The creators of the show are both huge Bowie fans. That's wonderful. Uh, I know there was a, uh, there was a TV show. I'm trying to remember the name of it. Uh, it was a, a couple of guys from New Zealand did this TV show with a lot of music in it. Flight of the Concords. Flight of the Concords, thank you. And one one of the episodes has a song called Bowie, mm-hmm. that is Bowie in style, and these uh, the uh, sequence in the episode is all all Bowie parodies, and it's really funny. Yeah, that that that's the I think that's the first episode <laughs> of that show. It might be period, but it's definitely the first one that I ever watched, and uh, yeah, uh-huh. no, I I loved it. <laughs> One of the writers for that show uh, went on to play Tamatoa in the movie Moana and did yeah. uh, the, the song Shiny is a, is a Bowie kind of pastiche. And the first time I ever saw a movie with my kids in the theater and they started playing Shiny, is like, this is a Bowie song, isn't it? And I looked it up later and yeah, yeah, it was. You know, I, I've, I've seen Moana quite a few times. I didn't quite make that uh, connection. That's awesome. Yeah, don't definitely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. Um, but let me, you know, let me ask you, what else are you uh, working on that, you, you know, obviously you're able to talk about at this point? I'm working on several f- fiction and nonfiction projects that I can't talk about yet, uh, mm-hmm. but I would, re- I would really like to do another graphic bio. So I'm kind of uh, in the process of contacting some bands and some artists to see if I can get official approval uh, to do a, a book based on another musician or band that I really like. Uh, so early on in the process, uh, but... 
when I know more and, and sign some deals. I'm allowed to talk about it. Um, mm-hmm. I'm definitely going to let you guys know for sure. But, uh, it's very, very early days still. Sure, absolutely. But, you know, obviously best of luck with that. We would love to see some more of that. Yeah, it's fun. It turns out I really like writing music biographies, and I'm pretty <laughs> sure my ne- my next fictional comic project will probably be uh, about a band or be some somewhat music related too, because uh, it's just fun to write about. And there there are not a whole lot of other books about music uh, in the, from a comic perspective. Uh, I know that uh, there was a just there was just a book ar- uh, announced. Uh, I think it's called MNPLS, something like that. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. And it's about, it takes place during, uh, in Minneapolis, uh, and Prince is a character in the story, and it's all about a band that is similar to the revolution and how they're, uh, the rise of this fictional band in Minneapolis, and I think that's wonderful. And I know the creators, and the uh, book is going to be a huge hit, and I can't wait to buy it. I think it's out in November. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Joe Illich is writing that. I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to that one. And Hannibal Tabu is writing, and he's a friend of mine. And the art on that is there, the newer artists, the kind of discoveries in the uh, never. I had never heard of them before, but they're amazing, and the art is going to be spectacular. So definitely, definitely, if you're a fan of Bowie, definitely check that one out. Yeah, I think I saw some preview art on. Uh, I want to say it was Bleeding Cool, but it looked great. Mm-hmm. So anytime someone does a music bio or a music fictional book uh, in, its, in its comics, I'm going to be first in line to buy it I, and then probably write my own next. <laughs> you know, uh, did Rush, didn't some, some publisher just did one for Rush's A Farewell to Kings, like a making the making of that album or something like that? Uh, I don't know, but uh, uh, I know there was a Nick Cave graphic novel biography that just came out, and that looks really spectacular. Uh, and I know that someone is doing an official Grateful Dead graphic novel working with the band, uh, which I find pretty pretty funny, and I think that's yeah. going to be really good too. It's interesting. I've actually been looking for uh, a parting gift for a, a coworker who's an opera singer, and I've been finding graphic novels based on classic operas too. It's amazing how deep music can, has found its way into comics in weird little corners. Yeah, and like you said, it's especially interesting because it's hard it's hard to depict singing and, and songs and things like that in a comic because it's a static page and you can't hear it. Uh, so people have found various different creative ways around that, and I think it's fun. It's really fun to, to try. Among your other work, you also wrote Satellite Falling uh, at IDW mm-hmm. a few years back, which is a series I really liked. Oh, uh, thank you. You're, you're, you're the one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. Um, uh, can you talk a little bit? I mean, it was this really cool, for those of you who didn't read it, which is from that reaction, I guess, most people, um, a, uh, a sci-fi set out in sort of a space station where there's the main character is the only human on the station mm-hmm. and is a, a space cabbie slash bounty hunter. Uh, where did that come from? interesting that you mentioned Space Cabby because that DC series was definitely an influence uh, uh, along with Fifth Element uh, and Star Wars we, I definitely well I wanted to do a space opera really bad and I came up with this idea of what if there was a station manned entirely by aliens with a single lone human escaping from Earth uh, finding her way to the station but what happened to her uh, what, would she, what would she do and determined that she was a cab driver 
uh, and then she used that as a cover for her bounty hunting activities and used an illegal device to change her shape into whatever alien that she was hunting. Uh, and so she would use the cabbie job to find out as much information about her, her prey as she could and then hunt them later on. Uh, and I thought that was a really neat premise for a book. And then I determined that the earth had fallen and was corrupt and she was one of the only good human beings left. And uh, they were hum- earth was tracking her. And uh, she puts a kind of a band of aliens together to keep keep Earth from destroying the station and and infecting everyone. And it turned out really well. Uh, artist Stephen Thompson, who did Star Trek and Star Wars, uh, he did Star Wars before the book and is now drawing Star Trek Year Five for IDW. So he's definitely the unnatural uh, to do a space opera. It was a lot of fun. We had a, we we did five issues of that, and. It, the critical reception was great. Uh, didn't sell too well, but that was okay because not a lot of independent books uh, sell too well. But we still enjoy doing it, and I, st- I still sell plenty of them at conventions. Uh, once I explain the premise to people, they're like, "Ah, oh, that sounds cool," and the art is really nice. I think I might try this out. That's great. Um, speaking of of conventions, are you? Uh, do you have any uh, shows coming up now that we're heading back into uh, the season? I just did Central Florida Comic Con this past weekend. That was a lot of fun. I met some fans, also a lot of Bowie books. It was a blast. Uh, I don't have any on my schedule. I'm trying to talk to some of the people doing the Bowie book overseas because the book is a huge success in Italy and uh, France and Spain. And I'm trying to talk to the publishers there, conventions and comic book stores there to see if they might want to fly me out and do some signings of the international edition. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, But, you know, no conventions on the schedule. But anytime I do a signing or a show, the book flies flies off the shelf. So I imagine if I try to ask a few more people, I could probably get some things on the schedule. We'll see what happens. Awesome. Um, have Have you made your Oscar picks yet? Uh, I really, really uh, liked 1917, mm. uh, and it was really, um, I liked that it, they made it look like it was all one take, and the acting was fantastic, and the story was amazing, and uh, that one is definitely my choice for best picture. I uh, was not too impressed with Joker or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, I thought those were both only okay. Um, so that would be my choice. It would be 1917 if if I had to choose. I was I was upset that Knives Out didn't get nominated for Best Picture. Thank you. Uh, it, was the, it, was the best, it was the best movie I saw last year, and I think Ryan Johnson is a genius. Uh, and I was really sad that it didn't get nominated, but it's okay because uh, I think people should go see it anyway. And if they liked Clue, this is that, but better. We are a decidedly pro knives out podcast. <laughs> That's good. I, I, I am not a member of the academy, but I am definitely protest voting knives out for best picture, even though it wasn't nominated. Maybe, maybe they'll accept write-ins. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretending that's there in place of Joker. Uh-huh. Good choice. Yeah. I'm hitting 1917 this weekend. It's the last of the lot that I need to see. Uh, you'll like it. it you, pretty much the point of view and the, the single take scenario following uh, these two soldiers draws you right in and never lets go. It's very, inten- very intense. Uh, if you saw um, if, if you saw that movie with uh, Adam Sandler 
uh, Uncut Gems mm-hmm. and, and how intense that movie was. It, this is equally as intense. So it just you're you're exhausted by the end of this movie, and I think that's great. Cool. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, what are you What are you reading right now, uh, comics or otherwise? Uh, let's see. Um, I'm reading a book called Republic of Thieves. Uh, it's by Scott Lynch. Scott Lynch. It's, book, uh, it's book three of the Gentleman Bastard series, uh, and it's amazing. It's the best, his best book yet by far. Uh, it's just completely engrossing and compelling. Uh, and uh, that one is I'm really really enjoying right now. Uh, as far as comics, I really like Jonathan Hickman's X-Men comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, little little bit overwhelmed by the number of comics now but his his house of x and powers of x were, were incredible and uh, i like that he kept killing them and re- resurrecting them and uh moira is now a is a now a uh mutant that starts over in time every time she dies and i think that's uh, pretty wild and the art on, on those books has been really stellar as well yeah, you know, it, it's funny. I know the discussion lately, the past couple of weeks, has been: Are there too many X books? And like Hickman had to go on Twitter and be like, "You don't have to buy them all, guys." <laughs> but um, I mean, it, it is a lot. <laughs> but that said, they're also really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, their their quality is at an all time high, and there's a lot of really good creators in some of these books. Uh, and there, it is a bit overwhelming, uh, but I'm definitely finding ones that I like within all of them, uh, especially the, the ones that they have coming up. Uh, there's a uh, young X-Men, I can't remember the title. But oh, Children Vita, of the Atom? Children of the Atom. Uh, yeah. Vita Yala is writing that, and it's yeah. all about kind of uh, descendant characters of the X-Men, and I think... Just from the art and the so the description and the creators is definitely something I'm going to have to check out because the, uh, that sounds amazing. Yeah, definitely. There was like that that like one two punch week where it was like, oh, here's the new Vita book, here's the new Leah Williams book, and I'm like, okay, well, I mean, sold. <laughs> I've only been waiting for these for months. <laughs> I, I like I like Leah's art writing as well. She's an amazing writer, and I pretty much buy everything she does. Uh, and of course. Uh, Mike Allred's X-Ray Robot is coming out, and yep. that's a must-buy. Uh, and there's a there's a, anything music-based that's comic that that's comic book form that's coming out. I'm going to buy. So we'll we'll see how the year goes. Right on. Well, uh, Steve, as we're as we're wrapping up here, how can people follow you online and everything you're doing if you in fact wish to be followed? Sure, you can find me on on Twitter at Tropical Steve. Uh, it's probably the best way to find me. I'm always tweeting on there about Bowie and about music uh, and about comics in general. You can uh, find me on Instagram at Son of Stev uh, with no E at the end. And I post a lot of the Bowie-related art over there. Uh, and just give me a follow. Send me a message. Uh, send me a picture of you with the, with the Bowie book. And uh, we'll talk music. So it's... Uh, it's been quite a ride doing this book, and I'm looking forward to seeing where my comics career takes me next. Awesome. Steve, thank you so much for coming on doing the show. Thanks very much. It's been a blast. W-N-Q-A. All right, so I'm still by the door. Uh, mirror guy. Mm-hmm. 
How far away am I from Mirror Guy? Uh, Mirror Guy is about 15 feet that way. Okay, so I can... If I have 30... I'm going to try and stab Mirror Guy. Okay. With yeah. my knife. Okay. Alright, so that is... Well, yeah, first I can yep, see so you 15 hand. feet, get in, uh, roll your... Okay. No, so that's a 9 plus say, 15, uh, 15. 15 does not hit. Really? Yeah. He, he's got a somewhat of a better AC. Okay. So he kind of, it, it about, he, uh, the, it seems like he's got some sort of magical armor over his clothing that deflects the knife. Okay. And you can choose to disengage and back off 15 feet so he, you're not in melee range with him when his yeah. turn comes around. Yeah, that sounds like a thing I should do. Okay, Get you do that. Splash zone, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> yep. All right, so that was that turn. Now, now there's no ice for you to slip on. So yeah. That's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Now we're back up to Cold's turn. Um, attack. You, Veronica. What's your AC? Uh, 14. Lucky. Very close. A <laughs> hand of cold comes out, bats at you, and misses. Did he try to chill touch me? Yes, that he motherfucker. did. <laughs> um, That's my thing. Yep. And that was what he does. Um, Weather Witch has now been all sorts of screwed up, and she decides, she looks around, and she brings the windshield back up mm-hmm. and starts backing away. Yeah. Sorry, Lenny, but you're, I think, I hate to say it, but he was right. You're not paying us enough for this. Yeah, get out of here, girl. So, I think this room full of money and gems isn't enough payment. Yeah. And an explosively magical rabbit statue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're... They only get paid a percentage, you know? And, and there's only so much... You, you can you only can't, split it so many ways. And you can only split it when you're alive. Yeah. That's fair. Um, okay, back. Okay, here. Okay. Mickey comes out of it. Okay. She, she, she stops... She's still laughing maniacally, but now is a different tenor of maniacal laugh. Yeah. This is like, oh, I'm gonna hurt you. Um, yeah, that's what I thought you'd say, you psycho. And now we are back up to the top, and it is Mirror Master. You're still in the one corner. Um, Mirror Master reaches out teleports back. He's now back in his circle of mirrors. Okay. And that is his action. Uh, uh, Veronica, you're up. Where's the mirror master? In the corner with surrounded by the mirrors. In the corner surrounded by the mirrors. Well, um... I do two things right now. Um, I wonder what would ha- I, you know, I'm really just curious as to what would happen to this guy if I, um, 
If I shattered the mirrors while he was in them. <laughs> it and would end poorly. You know, I'm just, I, I feel like I'm, I'm just dying to find out intellectual, you know, challenge here. It, but, okay, so that's within 60 feet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, actually, I'm going to do that. Um, I'm going to shatter whatever he is. I'm going to just take aim at okay. the mirror. Uh, cast shatter. I don't know if anyone is within a 10-foot radius of there, but... No, Mickey would be right outside of a 10-foot range of there. Yeah, you know, let's find out. Okay. Never done that before. He, yeah, he was hanging, you know, yeah. strobing through mirrors. Is the w- weather witch still in the room or is she out of there? She's getting, she's probably... I'm gonna, I'm gonna as a free action yell at her and be like, get out of here, girl. Go get the reward. Go ahead and snitch. <laughs> yeah, she, she, she'll be out of the room next turn. Yeah. I just want to let her know I'm not trying to hit her on her way out. Okay. You know. Very so, fair. Yeah. <laughs> so, so she doesn't try to hit me on her way Shatter. Um... The mirrors shatter, and you look down, and he's in all the mirrors. It's not like broken, like part, but like you see images of him in all of the mirrors, Mm -hmm. but none of them is large enough for him to get out of. So he is trapped in the whichever mirror he was in that is broken. I flip the mirrors, the bird. Yes. And he is now out. Fuck you, mirrors! <laughs> out of the game. He's out of things. Oh, all right. Um, then there were two. Well, the witch is really out of things. Uh, and it's your turn. Ha! All right. Well, uh, it's just me and you, Lenny, and the crazy kid. So, uh, yeah, look after Lenny. Um, how far apart are we? Uh, twenty-five. Twenty-five ish feet. Um, Definitely within gun range. Yeah, let's go gunny gunny. Okay. Little gag. So that's uh, eighteen and six. So that's twenty-four. That hits. That so one d eight plus three. One d eight plus three. Uh, two five. Okay. It's at that point that even with the, most of his gang is gone. You know, he drops the wand and puts up his hands. Mm. Listen, I'm not getting paid enough for this. I'm, I, I was just doing what I was told. Most of us, we were normal guys before he came to me. I, I brought them to him and, and he wanted this. We, we went in. He said we could keep anything else if we just brought him that weird ass statue who's he he's my boss he, I don't know his name but he what's he look like oh shit Uh-oh. you notice that the wand that is still in his holster is suddenly spreading ice over his body <laughs> to the point that he is pretty quickly liquid nitrogened up and is now flat out frozen statue guy Mm. Mickey looks at her now completely frozen uncle and is just frozen metaphorically Mm -hmm. um, and just isn't doing anything 
you look over at the pile of stuff and there is a box that is roughly the size of that safe deposit box mm-hmm. at the front of the stack. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go into it and you find a fairly adorable rabbit statue with a big blue gem yeah. right on its belly mm-hmm. amongst the property. And as this episode has gone very long, <laughs> you have now defeated my rogue's puzzle. But, but who is in charge? Well, you're just going to have to all come back and find that out in a future episode. That's what we call a story hook, folks. <laughs> did you like this? If you did, let us know, because we can do other ones, other continuing adventures. Yeah. Everybody have fun? Yes! yes! And we didn't even have to kill a teenager. Okay, so for, so for the 100th episode, we just put out a call for random questions on Twitter. Uh, we got two, and uh, so let's, let's do that. Uh, first, uh, from friend of the show, past guest Zach Quaintance, uh, which non-Simpsons Springfield residents would you be, and why? Hmm. That is an interesting question. I mean, we could always be Rose and Carl and Gild and Lenny, you know, sending some outgoing mail. Uh, we, we, we've always been Lenny and Carl, I mean, to be quite honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think we're just Lenny and Carl. Yeah, it's, it's safe. You know, you're never going to get really big plots, but you're also, you know, you're there pretty much every episode. I think Lenny and Carl. Yeah, I think that, that that's a good answer. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then the other question from D. Emerson Eddy. Uh, if you were to find yourself lost in the woods, which original five X-Men member would you want to be stuck there with? Ooh. Stuck in the woods. Stuck in the woods. That's an interesting... Because if you were looking to get out of the woods... I mean, ideally. Ideally, probably as much as I've spent much of this podcast decrying him, uh, Hank McCoy. I did not think you were going this way. I I mean... Okay. You know me and my love of Cyclops. Yes. But Scott never had the chance to be a Boy Scout. Scott was... He, he has just a personality. Yeah. He does. But he was in an orphanage, in yeah. a city. He never got out there to wander. Beast, young Beast, he was a Boy Scout. He was, you know, out there, you know, almost probably an Eagle Scout, you know, <laughs> going through. He, and also climbing those trees. Like, he's bouncing not-quite-yet-Blueford Beast. Climbing... A, he, he could get a good view of the... I mean, so could Warren, but... Warren's rich and kind of like, oh my, I stepped in something icky. (laughs) (laughs) I think I would have to say the Beast. Okay. I would pick Angel because he has the wings to get me out of there. And also, I've always thought he was kind of hunky. So, Warren Worthington III for me. Warren Kenneth Worthington III. Uh, Warren, sorry, Warren Kenneth Worthington III. Although, I wouldn't mind being lost in the woods and, you know, maybe his wings get wet. We have to shack up for the night. Um, you know, we happen to find an abandoned cabin with some Al Green records. I'd be really into that. Um, okay, so when I was originally given this question, 
I assumed you were going to pick Cyclops, and I was going to pick Beast to be contrarian because I know your feelings about it. <laughs> but now that you have picked Beast, I'm going to say Cyclops because he will just laser eye down all the trees. There is that, but don't we have enough problem with yeah. deforestation In right now? In this climate, you know, you know. I, I, as much as I'm sure I would get to have to sit and listen to Hank be smug for however long it took, I think I would have to go for that. Okay. Well, <laughs> now I've been eco-shamed. Damn right. <laughs> feel it. Feel the shame. I do have to say, like, if I weren't thinking of this extremely selfishly, uh, if I weren't thinking of this as, like, X-Men Tinder, um, <laughs> Gene would, would be very good at getting uh, you out of the woods, uh, literally, you know, especially if at that point her like telekinetic abilities were well developed enough. Hmm. Um, also, she'd be able to sense if there were any other like people out there uh, who could help us. If there was maybe like a, a like a someone in the Parks and Rec department <laughs> that could, she could just like a wild you know, Ron Swanson has appeared mentally text. <laughs> yeah, you know, because he would be out there. He and he and he could. Shame Beast, you know? He could shame Hank McCoy for, for not being rugged and outdoorsy enough. And, um, yeah, I feel like, objectively, the best qualified person and just, like, sensible all around would be Jean Grey. But I still want to shack up with Angel, so that's my answer. <laughs> perfectly valid response. <laughs> Nobody picked Bobby. No. No. I mean, what's he going to do? Freeze the lake over so we can go ice skating? It's a good point. It's still another date, but I'm not as tight. <laughs> so there we go, folks. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for your questions. That's it for this week's show. Uh, as always, you can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A and WMQComics.com at patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, the ability to promote your work on our site, and a customized bonus reading column written by our own Matt Lazowitz built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. And a $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail from my collection. And uh, if we hit $10 in monthly donations, we will start a new project, most likely a deep dive retrospective on James Robinson and Tony Harris's Starman. Uh, big thanks to our patrons, Steve Morris from Shelf Dust, Charlie Davis from the Young Ones Podcast, Robert Secundus from Docs Talks at XavierFiles.com, Scott Madrinsky from Mojoswork.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's upcoming Spider-Woman series, Seren, and Rick Cook Jr. You can follow WMQComics.com on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. Not a fan of social media? Sign up for our weekly Q newsletter, which gives you the best of WMQ every week in your inbox. Finally, and most importantly, check out WMQComics.com for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views. And we'll see you next time. WMQA!